0: The Old Testament does not compete with the New Testament. There are are not two gods in competition for our attention and our affection. The Old Testament is the historic table setting of the arrival of Jesus Christ, the Messiah. So that's why I'm preaching this series. And that's why I also think that this series is largely... Evangelistic, Because the Old Testament, I think, it invites the attention of our friends, doesn't it? And when people want to criticize your faith, usually they're going to pick something out of the Old Testament. So it has the attention of our friends and our critics. So they're already thinking about the Old Testament. And you know what? They're asking the same questions that the Old Testament begs. They are. They're asking the exact same questions that the Old Testament begs of humanity. And so this is a great evangelistic series. And I hope that as we go through these subjects... That you can gain some framework in your mind for, oh, that's, that's how I would answer that question. Or, that's how we can make sense of that reality. So that when people ask us about our faith, <clears throat> it's not just, isn't it like so cool that God became a baby? Because that's not, frankly, that's just not that compelling. It's that God became a man and did what needed to happen in order to satisfy God. All of those realities. And so our theme this morning is is really sin. It's sin. And the the angel is the one who gives us those words. The announcement that the the angel here made to Mary and Joseph, it illuminated one particular promise that God kept. That promise was from Isaiah 7. So when Israel was afraid, there was an actual war going on in in this prophecy in the book of Isaiah, chapter 7, and they were sort of shaking in their boots. And, and, and the nations which were going to conquer them, they were afraid of them. They were basically saying, we are going to be overthrown. We're going to be overthrown. And then God says, no, that's not going to happen. And he says, this is going to be a sign to you that I am with you. And that's where you have this famous phrase, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. And some critics have pointed out that the word virgin can also mean basically a maiden who conceived on her first attempt. We don't need to go deep into biology here, but you sort of catch what I'm saying, like a honeymoon baby. And so people have said, I'm not sure that Jesus' birth is so miraculous because in, in Hebrew, in Isaiah, that word can mean either virgin or sort of like first-timer. So we're not really sure that Mary was really a true virgin. But that's where we have the beauty of the fulfillment of the Old Testament and the New. In the Old Testament, we do have a maiden not a true biological virgin, if you know what I mean. But in the New Testament, we have explicitly a virgin. In other words, they were betrothed, they were engaged, and as God-fearing Jews, they were not engaging in that activity. And not only does it say they were betrothed, but it said, and before they came together. The text leaves no mistake that this woman had never known a man. There is no way she could be or should be pregnant. And this was the sign. A virgin shall conceive and she shall bear a son and they will call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Now, this was a promise that Israel was desperate for. Now, in that time when they were afraid of their enemies conquering them, this is how God answered. I'm going to send a Messiah. I'm going to send somebody who's going to free you from your captors. The angel here actually exposits that passage for us and tells us explicitly what that slave is. Did you catch it there? It's in verse 21. She will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus. Why? For he will save his people from their sins. That's the exegesis of Isaiah chapter 7. That's what Isaiah 7 says, basically is what the angel is telling them. That this freedom that Israel is waiting for, that this redemption that they are waiting for is not geopolitical. The salvation that they are waiting for is salvation from sin. And you shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Later in Isaiah, in chapter 52, God sort of pulls this out in greater imagery. Isaiah 52 says, the same prophet Shake yourself from the dust and arise. Loose the bonds around your neck, O captive daughter of Zion. For the Lord says, you were sold for nothing and you shall be redeemed without money. There's more of this teasing that there is going to be a time when Israel is going to get up. They're going to shake the dust from their captivity. They're going to loose the bonds from around their neck and they are going to go free. They were sold For nothing, and they will be redeemed, which means to be bought back without money. Now, when did that happen? Peter said later, You were redeemed not with precious gold or silver, but with the blood of Jesus Christ. In other words, God is saying, I'm going to buy you back, but it's not going to be with money. I'm not going to go pay off your political captors. I'm not going to give them a ransom of treasure. I'm going to send my son, he's going to buy you out of slavery to sin. With his blood. And so sin is the major problem that Israel is dealing with. Sin is the major issue that they are languishing under. It's sin. They thought it was Rome. They thought it was their geopolitical circumstances. We may think that too here in Canada. Oh, if only Andrew Scheer had won. We are, Christians are in such captivity here under Justin Trudeau. That would be a false sense of Captivity. What the Bible says is that Israel didn't recognize that sin was their greatest enemy. Sin was their enslaver. Sin was, sin was that merciless captor from which we could not be freed. <clears throat> and so, friends, I just want to challenge us that too often when we begin speaking about God or Jesus, we start with people's problems. We, we want to point them to, you know, well, it's, it's your bad marriage that Jesus wants to fix. Or it's your addiction to, you know, said substance or activity that, that God wants to fix. Or it's your financial freedom. God wants to give you financial freedom. We start with people's problems that they, that they experience on the surface of their life. And what the scriptures direct us to is that, no, 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 don't go with those symptoms. Those are symptoms of a greater problem, a greater reality, a deeper root. And that root is sin That root is not just mistakes that we made. Those are symptoms of the fact that we are rooted as human beings in sin. This is why when the angel came to Mary, he said, His name shall be Jesus, for he will save his people from their sin. From their sin. Now, this is where I want you to be in Genesis chapter 3. What do we mean when we use the word sin? That word has all been expunged from our public discourse, hasn't it? No one talks about sin. If they do, it's in a mocking sense. Well, what is sin? I mean, when we give the gospel to people, again, you know, we say Jesus died for your sins. Most people will literally give you a blank stare. Do you know that? This is why I want to help you share what the gospel means, what Advent means, because when people say, my sin, what on earth is that? In Genesis chapter 3, we're taken to a scene that you have to see to feel the tragedy of it. God creates a paradise. He puts Adam and Eve in paradise. He gives them all the gifts and intellect that they need to skillfully subdue the garden and cultivate it. He gave them the building blocks of society and said, now fill the earth and subdue it. He gave them paradise. Genesis chapter 3 gives us that tragic scene where they, they forfeit all of that blessing. They trade it in for something that they thought would be better, which would be that higher knowledge something beyond what God gave them. Satan comes and twists God's word before them, and they, they misplace their trust in God, and they believe the words of the serpent. And so they sinned. They broke the one barrier that God said. And you can look at it as a tree. It's like, well, why did God pick one particular tree? That's not the point. The point was God said there is a, there is a line as humanity that you are not designed to cross. That line is that I am God. I handle the knowledge of life and death. You handle being humans. You handle doing your earth thing. You're going to be awesome kings and queens on the earth, he said. But do not come seeking the knowledge of God. Do not try to be me, for it will kill you. And Adam and Eve said, I don't really believe him. And so they sin and they take that fruit and they say, we want the knowledge that God has. We want to be gods for ourselves. And that's what Satan said. He twisted and he said, God knows that you will be like him when you eat. God doesn't want any rivalry, so you need to take that fruit. You need to say, I'm going to be like a God. I'm going to compete. The lie about that was we were not designed to be God. God does not share his glory with anyone. There can only be one God. And so for our good, he sets a boundary that we cross. And then the whole Genesis chapter 3 tells the story of what happens to Adam and Eve. Suddenly, they recognize that they were naked. So they went and they sowed fig leaves together to make themselves clothing. They had shame for the first time in their lives. Then they went and hid from God for the first time in their lives. They had to hide from God rather than to freely enjoy him. Then God pronounces a curse over their work. Then God banishes them from the garden. I mean, things fall apart so fast friends. This is what we call the birth of sin. This is what we call the fall. We fell from perfection in God into a sinful state. We're taught in the scriptures that basically in Adam, we have all inherited that same impulse to be our own gods. This is why every human being needs to understand the gospel and what Advent is. And so this curse is placed by God upon our first parents, Adam and Eve, a curse. And this is why the question is begged, who will reverse this curse? There's just two things I want you to recognize about the curse. Uh, that are are unique and interesting, and that is that man gets cursed in his tilling, right? The earth will not yield its fruit to you. In other words, you're going to have to sweat and bleed to get out of the earth that I designed you to get out of. So we recognize that work was part of perfection before Adam and Eve fell. Work was a good thing. And then God said, once you fell into sin, now it's going to be a pain. You listen to country radio, I mean, they cannot wait till 5 o'clock on Friday, you know, and then there's songs about Monday and there's songs about Friday. And mankind laments work because it has become hard. It has become difficult. It has become dangerous. And, and Eve is likewise cursed in childbirth. God says, now you will suffer pain in childbirth. <clears throat> what would have been a pure, free painless experience has now been cursed. And this is why we're always praying for mothers who are about to give birth, right? Pre-fall, we wouldn't have really been praying for like, this is going to be amazing. A baby's going to come out. And now we pray for moms because we know it's a, it's a challenge. And the, re- the, the reality in this curse is that in Adam and Eve, each one had a unique contribution to the progress of humanity. Women would bring new children into the world and raise families and subdue the earth through population. And that man would go and till the ground and craft it and shape it after a good thing. And both of those two things were cursed. So men and women, our ability to fill the earth and subdue it through childbirth and through craft and vocation have both been cursed. And so basically, the progress of humankind has been cursed by the presence of sin. We now struggle to achieve human flourishing by the curse. But before we get too theological about it, we have to recognize Adam and Eve's experience here. Not only did they fall out of a personal relationship with the living God, they felt shame and guilt for the first time, which I think we can all relate to. When we have so blown it with somebody, when we have so fallen into temptation, there's the shame and guilt of that sin. This is what Adam and Eve experienced for the very first time. For us, it's common. But for them, it was a burden. It was something that crushed them at the beginning and so they're alienated from God. They're banished from the garden. And then they have two sons, Cain and Abel. Cain, their older son, kills their younger son. You think your family is dysfunctional. This, this is what Adam and Eve are beginning to experience because of the fact that they thought they could do better than God. Their one son kills their second son for envy, for pride. Pride. And then that son is also likewise banished. So they lose both of their first two sons, one to death, one to banishment for sin. Adam and Eve are now living in a sin-cursed world where childbearing is painful and Adam's job to cultivate the earth and to build a home has now been cursed with, with difficulty. And all the while, they are made to deal with this new world without that intimate relationship with God. So not only did they lose that personal closeness with God, but now they are made to deal with the world that they created without God's intimate closeness. I mean, it's just insult upon injury, the effect that sin began to take in the world. <clears throat> when you look at your life and the way you're trying to raise your kids, or maybe a marriage fell apart, or maybe you didn't get into the school you wanted, or, or the thing that you had your sights set on, your heart and soul set on, it fell through or maybe a relationship that you don't know how it went sideways and you can't reconcile it. Your parenting efforts pouring into your children and you just do not see the results you're desiring. The godliness that you are striving after constantly interrupted by personal failure. We need to see this friends as normal. So often, and and I've been praying this myself so often. I want to rail against God when things are, are, are difficult when, when all three of my kids get sick at the same time and there is nowhere for mom and dad to run and hide and get two hours of sleep. And I want to rail against God. Why, why can't we just enjoy some peace? This is the burden of the curse. The curse has distorted and, and, and altered our experience as human beings. We are the designers of our own environments In our parents, we brought sin into the world. And in us, even through us, sin still causes pain. Sin separates, it kills, and it corrupts. And the reason is because sin has infected and corrupted every part of who you are. That is your motives, your will, your desires, your intentions have all drowned in the sea of the curse. Have you ever been gardening or, or baking or something and, and you get your hands completely filthy, covered in something? Uh, you know, who knows what you're cleaning up and you're like, I got to wash my hands. And Delta did an ad with this um, where you can turn the tap on by hitting it with your forearm to get the running water. The, the idea there is you need some implement to get the water going to clean yourself off. Well, in sin, it's not just your hands that are covered. It's not just your forearms. There is no part of your body, your entire humanity, that can get that tap running. That's the analogy I want you to picture. Sin has cursed every part of who you are. There is no one clean area on your body that you can access God's blessing, his design for humanity. We have been drowned in the curse of sin. And I would challenge you, although it can be painful, examine your life examine the ways that sin has ripped apart the things that were good about your life or corrupted them or tainted them in some way. Now, I'm not trying to paint so grim a picture that we do not have pleasure or enjoyment or that God has blessed us immensely. But we need to look objectively at the environment that sin has caused. And just like Adam and Eve, in Eve, her childbirthing, and in Adam, his mandate to cultivate and till the earth to provide food and shelter for his family, just as those two means of flourishing were cursed, so today, every attempt that we make as humanity to advance the human race, to improve our situation, it is cursed from the word go because God's ways and his glory are not our motives. And I want to show you an example and sort of an analogy for this to prove my point, who's here, who here has heard of um, artificial intelligence? You see commercials all the time for those little things where you walk in your house and you say, hey, Alexa, uh, you know, make me a chicken fried rice or whatever. You know? Turn the lights to this color or um, you know, turn my oven on. That's, that's consumer level artificial intelligence. But if you read into what's going on in this field, you will quickly discover there is a lot more terror associated with it than hope. I tell you, any research I do with artificial intelligence, it fills me with a lot more fear than it does hope. Now, why is that? Why would be, we be afraid of this great technological advance? Um, there's one American scientist, inventor, futurist. He is essentially, along with many other public thinkers, very optimistic about these advances. Here's what he said. Within a few decades, machine intelligence will will surpass human intelligence, leading to the singularity. Look it up if you don't know what that is. Technological advance so rapid and profound that it represents a rupture in the fabric of human history. The implications include the merger of biological and non-biological intelligence, immortal software-based humans. Ultra high levels of intelligence that expand outward into the universe at the speed of light. Does that sound like a little bit of hyperbole? A little bit of optimism about what mankind can achieve? My friends, this is Babel. This is the Tower of Babel happening in the 21st century. Man planting his feet and saying, we will make a name for ourselves. Listen to him. Ultra high levels of intelligence that expand outward into the universe at the speed of light. Talk about man saying we will make a name for ourselves. The knowledge of the glory of man will cover the cosmos at the speed of light. Within a few decades, Kurzweil says. He was also asked whether or not God exists. And this was his answer. I would say, not yet. In other words, God will be the fabrication of mankind's intelligence. When we reach this point, we will be God. We will be God. This is man reaching for freedom from God, yet locking himself in a cage of futility and death. This is mankind reaching for progress, reaching for meaning, reaching for freedom without the fear of the Lord this is why great technological advance is a terrifying thing in the hands of pagans. Artificial intelligence could be wonderful in the hands of God-fearing men and women. If you think about it, you plug an AI machine into the internet, it has access to the Bible. So I, I think it would be hilarious if this giant singularity ends up becoming a Christian entity. Because it surveys the whole world of human intelligence and says, Oh, guess what? The Bible is that which is true. It would be very ironic and it would be wonderful, but it wouldn't surprise me. You know why? Because God shut down Babel because he said it's not good for man to raise man up to the highest level. Men will be the architects of their own demise, their own death, their own suffering because they are locked in the curse of sin. This is the curse that we are living with uh, today. And I would say every generation, I think, has looked to something For salvation, some philosophy, some technology, uh, whether it's education, technology, diplomacy. Every generation has had something other than Jesus to say, that's what's going to take us into the future. That's what's going to finally overcome poverty. That's what's going to finally overcome human conflict. We will finally unite the nations. We will finally overcome these issues if we just achieve this. It's been 2,000 years of this over and over and over again. Mankind proving that we are cursed. We are filling the history books with proof that we are under a curse of sin. So the question we have to ask is why can't we figure this out? According to these futurists and these optimists, it's ju- we're just a generation away. We're almost there. We're on the precipice of figuring this out. And then we'll get it. And then we can end ignorance. We can end intolerance. We can end uh, human hunger. We can end every form of human suffering. But they are not recognizing the root. They are looking at all the symptoms. And they have not found a solution for the root. Genesis 3.15. Fix your eyes On that part, this is God speaking to Adam and Eve and saying, this is what life is going to be like from now on. You're going to live under a curse. And Genesis 3.15 is almost universally recognized as God's very first the seed of a promise that he would not let us stay that way. God is such a gracious God. He is such a loving God long suffering God that even in the curse upon Adam and Eve in 315, he said, I'm not going to let it stay this way. He said, I will put enmity between you and the woman speaking to the snake and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. That is the seed Of the promise that God would not let it stay that way. He promises a future clash between the seed of the woman and the seed of Satan or Satan himself. He says that the snake will bruise the heel of the seed of the woman. Not a lasting wound. A wound nonetheless, but a wound that could be recovered from. But the seed of the woman would bruise the head of the serpent a mortal wound, a destructive wound, a critical wound. This is not just a prophecy. This is not the reason why snakes are scary to us. This is a cornerstone passage for recognizing that one day this clash would take place and the seed of the woman would destroy the power of Satan. In the very moments that Adam and Eve had introduced sin to the world, God said, I will not let it stay that way. God is not held captive by our sin and our mistakes. He promises a way forward. What we read as the scriptures unfold is that we become enslaved to this snake. We become enslaved to the works of Satan, to sin and his offerings. We talked about that a few weeks ago. Humanity is enslaved under his watch. We're not only enslaved to him in in some explicit lens, but we're enslaved to our own desires. This new desire that Adam and Eve had introduced to us to be our own gods. This is the very essence of sin. Sin says my way. Sin says me. Sin says no God. That's where we are enslaved. We are enslaved to our own ambitions. We're enslaved to our own sin, our shortcomings, our inability to extend our hand to God and say, I will partner with you. The policies that define our culture today, think about this. The policies that define our culture today, abortion, uh, euthanasia, uh, transgender um, redefinition, homosexual lust as, as being equated with uh, God's design, they all center on death and distortion. Because humanity's idea of progress always resorts to death. We talk about women's rights, we're really talking about abortion, we're talking about killing babies. We talk about uh, the rights of the suffering, we're really talking about euthanasia, killing them more quickly. We talk about the rights of human beings. It's the distortion and abandonment of God's design for nature and biology. We talk about marriage rights. We're talking about abandoning the family unit and the flourishing that God promised through childbearing. This is the policies of of human progress today. The Christian vision has a vision for flourishing of life. We are a cult of life because our Savior is the one who died for us. Humanity without a Savior is cursed to death And distortion. All as a result of being a slave. Our worst problem is that thinking that we can be the ones who fix it. That we can be the ones who fix it. We plunged ourselves into death. And we think that we can death our way out of it. Peter says later in the New Testament, You are a slave to that which you obey. In other words, don't tell me you're not a slave if you can't stop doing the same thing. Paul would also say in Romans 6 that you were slaves to sin. You were slaves. Don't deceive yourselves. You are under slavery to sin. And if you're talking to a person and you're trying to help them understand this concept of sin, this being trapped in disobedience to God, go ahead and ask them. Of all the things in life that you can control... How many things are exactly the way that you want them to be? Like take a, any relationship, take their career, you know, even take the car that do they even drive the car that they want to drive? Human beings need to recognize that we are enslaved to sin. We cannot even affect the things closest to us, the things most immediate and easy to change. Humanity has no control. We live in an illusion of control. And my friends, when you're dealing with people who want to resist the gospel, you need to have them examine the the results of their system. Are you a slave or not? Because all of us are. The only way you can become a Christian is to recognize that you are first enslaved and you need a redeemer. You need someone to come and buy you out of the shackles and take the reins off your neck. What we need to recognize is that Advent is answers the question, why can't you do it yourself? There's a great weight loss um, ad out there that says if you could do it yourself, you would have done it already. I mean, if that doesn't motivate you to sign up for a gym, right? Basically, this is what humanity needs to recognize. If you could fix your problems, if you could end human suffering, why haven't you done it already? Because there's a problem that we don't have the tools to address. Our problems are not our circumstances, not a lack of AI. It's not a lack of education. It's a sin nature that we inherited. Now let's talk about Jesus. This is humanity existing in the utter glooms of darkness. Isaiah 9 says that the people dwelled in gloomy darkness before they saw a great light. God, way back in Genesis chapter 3, said, I will put enmity between the snake and the seed of the woman. I will send someone to crush the work of Satan, to free his people from their sin. This is what the angel said to Joseph. You will call his name Jesus because he will free his people from their sin. The worst thing, the one thing that humanity could never, ever, ever fix. God said, I will fix it. And God made it unmistakable. He sent a sign that could not be forged by technology. It could not be imitated through magic. It could not be confused circumstantially. He said, this is how you'll know. She'll be a virgin and she'll be pregnant. Even the thickest people in the room can figure out that something's odd about that. God has done something here. This is the child. This is the one that God promised in Genesis chapter 3. This is who we've been waiting for. And he's not just here to overthrow the Romans. That would make Genesis chapter 3 false, right? It's not Rome that we need freedom from. Genesis chapter 3 said, he will crush the head of the snake. That is Satan. God will destroy the works of our slave driver, of our captive. We have been set free from the work of Satan. Ephesians chapter 2 says, uh, You were once children of wrath, obeying the prince of the power of the air, Satan, who was working in the sons of disobedience. That's who you were before Messiah. Satan was crushed by our Redeemer. He bought us back out of slavery. The curse has indeed been reversed. It is not yet fully reversed. This is what we need to appreciate about the, the progress of redemption. We still live in a world where the effects of the curse are rampant. They ha- the curse has twisted its tentacles around every area of life. And this is why Christians are called to go and untangle or subdue everything to the reign of Christ. First Corinthians 15 says that not yet every enemy has been subjected to Jesus. Not yet. But the work of the church is to subdue and submit everything to the reign of Christ. So far the curse has affected. That is the extent that the reversal will affect. So if politics has been cursed by sin, if finance has been cursed by sin, if real estate has been cursed by sin, If human relationships have been cursed by sin, then so far will the reversal of redemption travel. There is nothing on the face of this earth that has been entwined in sin that will not be brought under the righteousness of Jesus Christ because he is the Messiah. I want to close with this thought. This idea of the curse of sin actually comes up as probably the single greatest criticism of Christianity that you will hear. How can a good God allow evil? That is the big question. People think that when they lob that one over to you, it's, it's over. How do we respond to that? Friends, we need not to run away from the reality of the curse. People are right to recognize that evil pervades our world. Don't try to convince them that sin and evil don't exist. That's not the way out of that question. The scriptures teach us that we are the architects of evil. We are the ones who perpetuate evil. Ask somebody to list all of the evils in the world when they describe that and see how long it takes them to get them to list themselves. you will be there a long time because everybody's idea of evil is something out there that somebody else needs to deal with. Nobody sees and recognizes the evil in their own heart. People need to recognize that evil is just a collective of evil people. The evil that we see in the world is just the snowball effect of humans living for a very long time. We are the architects of that evil. We are the ones perpetuating and creating all kinds of evil. So don't get them to look away from that. Say, you are right and it's worse than you think because you are part of the problem. And the fact that a person can stand up and say, I know the difference between good and evil and I know that a good God would not allow this and a good God would only allow this. You stop them there and you say, you only know that proving that there is a God who is above you. The only reason somebody can say, why would a good God allow evil? It presupposes that they know what good is. And that knowledge comes from their creator. It did not come from within. If the world is so bad, there's no way that humanity would have ever been able to conceive of perfection. That is a concept that came from above. It was endowed to us when we were made by our creator in God's image. We were born to subdue the earth to the will of God to make humanity flourish, to do well in all of the vocations that God has called us to. We were conceived and designed by God for goodness and for perfection. That's why people ask that question, because they say, I know what we should be doing, but why aren't we? Well, we have an answer. And so we can say to them, don't let the signs of the curse drive you away from God. Don't let the presence of sin in the world drive you away from God because in Mary and Joseph, these two young parents, he said to them, the virgin will conceive in accordance with Isaiah chapter 7 and she will give birth to a son and his name will be Jesus because he will save his people from their sin. He will save them. So don't run from God. Run into his redemption. Run into his salvation. It is free and that's what the Christmas message is about. It's redemption. It's the long-awaited promise that Messiah will come and crush the head of Satan. I just want to close with Isaiah 52, 9 and 10. Break forth together into singing, you waste places of Jerusalem. For the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem The Lord has bared his holy arm before the eyes of all the nations and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. That's the result of Messiah. Break forth into singing. God has shown his salvation to all the nations. This is fulfilled in the baby who was born to the seed of the woman, Jesus Christ. Let's pray.